All right. Well, every couple of years, it seems uh, my wife and I are on a road trip, or maybe we're just driving back really late at night from the Bay Area, and it's one of those times where, like, the kids are asleep. It's late, and it's you just trying as hard as you can not to like not to crash the car. Anybody know where I'm coming from, right? So you, like, one of you asks the other one, "Okay, if you drive, I'll talk to you and I'll keep you awake. I promise. I'll, I'll stay up with you and, and we'll be able to talk." So this is what we were doing a couple of weeks ago, and uh, one of the one of the games that we'll play sometimes when we're at this barely sane, sort of delirious state is we'll play this game where one of us asks the other to tell us, like I'll say to Carmen, tell me something about you that I don't know yet. Um, and, uh, and then so then Carmen's got to like search the, you know, some obscure story from like the third grade and, and, and share it with me. And when we were driving across the country after our honeymoon in 1995, this was pretty easy because we didn't know a lot about each other. 22 years later, this is pretty challenging. I mean, there's almost nothing that I can think of, even when challenged, uh, to tell my wife that she doesn't already know some story. All the good stories have been told by now, you know? Um, and, and so I just don't think there's anybody who knows my story better than she does, except uh, like when I was a little kid, I'm sure my parents knew that stage of my life better. There's nobody's life that I know more about than my wife's life, except maybe my children that I've just seen every, almost every uh, moment of their life um, roll out. But even with this, this person uh, about whom I know more than anything, there's still all these stories, right? There's these things that she's forgotten, things that'll never be shared because they've never, they've, they're like, they're gone now. Um, and, and so even the person that I know best in the whole world, I sometimes, I'm wondering, I wonder what percentage of her life I actually know. Uh, how about you? Think of the person that you know best in the whole world, and, and how much, what percentage of their life do you think you are actually familiar with? What percentage of their life do you think you actually, what percentage of their story do you think you have heard? You think it's like 50% or maybe 30% or, I don't know, maybe like 5%? Someone pointed out to me this week that even if we reached a point of total mastery of the life and the teachings of Jesus, we'd only know a fraction of his life. Uh, because nearly everything we know about Jesus comes from the three years of his public ministry between his baptism at age 30 and his death and resurrection at age 33. So it's a time period that only represents one-tenth of his life. So even if you know everything that happened between those three years, you'd only know a fraction of the story of Christ. You'd only know a little bit about his life. Because we only get, and because besides those three years, we only get a few glimpses into, into what happens in the life of Jesus. Uh, we get a couple details about his birth. We hear one sentence about what happens on his eighth day. We get a couple of uh, paragraphs about what happens on his 40th day. We get a story about when he's 12. But other than that, there, there's nothing else. There's a whole lot of silence. A lot of Jesus' story isn't told, so it's just simply not known. And one of the great lessons that we can take from that reality, from the relative silence of the early life or about the early life and early adulthood of Jesus is that the few stories that are recorded matter. The few things that the gospel writers do tell us are important. Um, and they're included in their accounts for a reason. Uh, it's like the first scenes of a movie 
Uh, they establish the setting. They, they reveal something about sort of the character, the main characters, what's core about them. They introduce the conflict. They kind of preempt the conflict that's about to happen. The early scenes of a movie or a story form the foundation of the story's main message. That's why a, a movie or a book could start with a number of different um, scenes, but the, the, the good movies start with those few scenes which are going to tell you or prepare you for the main point of the movie. So I asked you to summarize, if I asked you to summarize your childhood in four or five stories, which ones would you share with me, do you think? Which are the, which are the few scenes in your life which communicate something critical about who you have become? If you and I were on a road trip and I said, I'd really like to... I'd really like to know you. Tell me about when you were a kid. What stories would, would you relay that would give me insight into who you are, who you've become? In the middle of the story of Matthew chapter 2, tucked into this bigger narrative of the wise men or the magi coming from the east to bring gifts to the baby Jesus... And the king of Jew, the Jewish king Herod, hearing the news about the birth of Jesus. In between all that is this short, dramatic mini story about Jesus' family moving to a foreign country. We skipped over it last week. It's the kind of story that's easy to skip over, except that the intensity of the story and the details of the story practically demand an honest reader to say, wait a minute, what is this all about? Why is this included here? What is so important about this story that if all the stories you could include about the babyhood or the, the childhood of Jesus, Jesus as a baby, that this one would be included? Why is this so important? How does knowing the details of this story better help us better understand the, the life and the ministry of Jesus? How does this story help establish the roots of the revelation that we will receive through Christ's teachings and through Christ's life? That's the question. So here's, here's part of what we read last week. This is from Matthew chapter 2, um, beginning in verse 9, just to kind of remind you and get you a little bit into the context um, of what we're talking about. After the Magi from the east, these astronomers, these foreign guys, probably from Persia or Syria who come over, after they had heard from the king Herod, about all that had gone on. They went on their way, and the star that they'd seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over a place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures. They presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. After having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, that's the king, they returned to their country by another route. So this is, the, this is part of the Christmas story that we sometimes hear. If you missed last week, we went into this in detail. If you're like, what are we talking about? This is the early time of Jesus. This is the story about his birth and the first few uh, reactions to the news that Jesus has been born. That's what we talked about last week. We skipped this next part, which is actually going to be our focus today. Ready? Here it is. Verse 13 of Matthew 2. When they had gone... An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod's going to search for the child to kill him. 
So he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I will call my son. All right. So what details grabbed your mind or your imagination? What do you remember that I just read? What details from that story stand out to you? There are several, and I'd like to hear what, what you heard. Escaped in the middle of the night. That's interesting, right? The escape in the middle of the night communicates like intense urgency, apparently. You don't escape in the middle of the night unless you're trying to get away with something or you're really trying to, um, yeah, the, the threat is intense. What else did you hear? Danger, right. The whole, the whole story is, is sort of cloaked in danger, right. Chris? Uh, Herod's uh, jealousy is so deep that he's willing to kill the child. Yeah, yeah. The intensity of the threat and uh, uh, the, the level of threat that Herod feels is, did you catch that? I mean, that's the, that's the news. Uh, soldiers are coming, and the plan is to kill babies. Andrea? Fulfilling a prophecy. Yeah, there's this prophecy element, right? Um, he quotes Hosea chapter 11 here, and I'll get to that in a minute. Um, that might sound weird to us as we hear a story sort of validated by the support of Old Testament prophecy, but it was not at all weird for the original audience of Matthew because he's writing to the Jewish people. So the, the supportive piece of evidence in any case is prophecy from the Old Testament. End of story. It's a little bit weird to us because sometimes the prophets don't even, or the prophecies quoted don't even seem to directly relate to what he's talking about, but it's a different time, a different culture, and this is, uh, this is not weird for them. What else did you hear? Yeah, Joseph paid attention to a dream. That's super weird to me. I have, I have very active dreams, and I, have, I don't think I've ever done anything as a result of what I've dreamt. Uh, it would be scary. Um, so, but, but apparently, that's not weird for the original audience, right? Yeah, well, yeah. He gets the assurance that he should marry Mary in a dream, and you're right. And then he gets this direction that apparently is so clear that it, it provides it, it, it um, causes him to get up in the middle of the night and bail out. Sounds weird to me. Doesn't sound strange to the original audience. There was another hand over here, I think. Anyone else? And they, went to Egypt. they go to Egypt. Now, that's the part that doesn't sound weird to us necessarily, but would have sounded weird to them. That's the part that's weird. So the dream part, that's not weird. Joseph kind of taking the lead when Mary up to this point seems to be the primary parental figure. Now Joseph is getting all the direction. That's, that's not weird to them. Seems a little weird to me in light of uh, the story thus far. Um, God saying, run away from the Egyptian, run away from Herod instead of face your enemy. That seems a little weird to me. Wouldn't have felt weird to them because their, their concern, their cultural fear of Herod is so deep. Go to Egypt, however, that's the, the part of the story that we might not notice, but the escape to Egypt part is the, is the big detail. I believe that that's the part of the story that would have grabbed the attention of the original hearers of the story most intensely. I can tell you that's definitely the part of the story that early Christian writers focus on with most of the commentary on this passage. We might read over it as just some sort of geographical detail, but early Christians especially those with a Jewish background, they simply would not have been able to just read over this detail because of the place, because the place is so significant. Some places are so significant that simply mentioning the name of the place calls to mind this deep significance and even emotional 
um, connections and associations, right? So like if I were to say to you, hey, we're going to go to Hawaii next week, um, you know, you might have a, a whatever, a kind of association of images there. But if I said, yeah, we're going we're gonna to go to Pearl Harbor next week, that's well, a whole different set of associations, right? Especially if you're older, especially if you had direct contact with World War II and people who were affected by it, especially if you understand that, then if I say Pearl Harbor, you're thinking about something totally different. If I say, yeah, we're going to go to New York uh, this summer, you say, oh, what are you going to do there? And it would just be almost wide open. But if I said, hey, we're going to go to the site of the World Trade Center, a uh, whole different set of emotions now, right? A whole different set of expectations for what our mood will be when we're, when we're there. It's difficult to imagine a place that carries a more powerful emotional punch in the collective memory of the Jewish people than Egypt. Uh, this, is, uh, this is escaping from Egypt is the central event of the Old Testament. It's the Exodus. It is the main event of the Old Testament. The cross is the main event of the New Testament. The Exodus is the main event of the Old Testament. It's the defining event of the Jewish people. It's the, it's the event that reveals that God is deliverer. It's the event that says that God is the one who saves. It's the event that forever marks the people of Israel as those who have been saved by the one true God. So Egypt represents so much more than just a place in the story, Egypt means slavery, Egypt means oppression, Egypt means evil, Egypt means that's where we were property, not people. I mean, there's deep emotional connection to this place. Egypt is Jewish enemy number one, and the greatest day in history from a Jewish perspective is probably the day they got freed from slavery in Egypt. And so this little phrase that for us might be easily missed would have just stuck in their throats, especially assuming this message comes from God. Get up, take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt. It's the wrong preposition right there. You don't escape to Egypt. You, you escape from Egypt. You hear me? Like, so this is, really, this is really strange. Of all the remarkable details in this short little story from Jesus' first year, this is a loaded one. This is a symbolic one. And this is one that would have made the original hearers of the story think, wait a minute, something's going on here. We got to pay attention to this because this, he just tapped into this massive reality called Egypt. Which leads us to the main question I want to ask this morning. Why does Matthew tell us this part of the story? Why is that part of the story so important? So I'll offer four reasons. The first two are really, really basic. I'll jump into those, and then we'll try to focus on the, on the numbers three and four. So the first reason I think Matthew uh, records this is simply because it happened. The whole thing's true, right? The angel, the message, the escape to Egypt, Herod's murderous plot, his desire to kill children who are a threat to him, family sneaking out in the middle of the night, settling in Egypt, which is a territory bigger than the current Egypt that you think of, but it, the point is it was outside of Herod's control. It happened. And, and, and Egypt was Egypt. Even though they, weren't, they hadn't been slaves there for more than 1,000 years, they returned to the place where they were slaves. The pyramids are there. The language is there. The memory is there, right? The history is all there. So Matthew tells us this story first because it happened. It needs to be acknowledged. Second, and sometimes some of the stories that you would tell to those that you care about in order for them to really know you, one of the a totally legitimate reasons would be it happened. 
I just want you to know that, <laughs> right? A second reason that Matthew tells the story is because he sees it, as someone said, as the fulfillment of prophecy. Was that Andrea, I think, right? So this is big for Matthew. It's big for all the New Testament writers. They see Jesus as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, the teachings in the, in the early part of the Old Testament. All of Scripture, they believe, points to Jesus. And this is still a foundational Christian hermeneutic. In other words, this is still a primary way that Christians interpret the Bible, that everything points ultimately to Christ. So Hosea's prophecy, when he writes, out of Egypt, I will call my son, which is, which is what they're referring to when the prophet said, they're referring to Hosea chapter 11. Initially, when he wrote that, 800 years before Jesus was born, Hosea is talking, he's using father-son language to communicate the affection that God has for the people of Israel. Um, and all of them, collectively, they are all God's child. And so the major event in, in Israel's history is the fact that God delivers his children from Egypt. So Hosea writes, out of Egypt I called my son. Hosea, the original, is talking about this whole group of people. Matthew, however, in the New Testament, the one writing the gospel, he sees this, this rescuing the slaves from Egypt story he sees that as Old Testament foreshadowing to Jesus saving the world from sin story. So he makes that connection, which is pretty obvious to us way far down the road historically, but not so obvious initially to them. Matthew says that the reason Jesus and his family fled to Egypt is so they could be called out of Egypt, thus fulfilling Hosea's prophecy out of Egypt, I have called my son. He's trying to tell you the bigger story here. He's trying to give you a sign before he gets into the rest of his gospel so that you will accurately understand the, the person and the mission of the main character of his story, which is Jesus. So God rescued Israel from slavery. Main character was Moses. Now Matthew's telling the story of God rescuing the people from sin, the whole world from sin. And Jesus is the main character here. So the first two reasons are pretty obvious. Um, Matthew records this because it happened and because it fulfills prophecy. The second two reasons are, are a bit more challenging. So let's try to lean into these. These should push us. These should push us. The third reason that Matthew tells the story is because the Egypt detail reveals right from the start that the gospel or the good news of Jesus is for the whole world, including our enemies, including our enemies. Matthew only tells us four or five stories about Jesus' whole childhood, and one of them is that Mary and Joseph get this message in their sleep to flee, not just anywhere, but flee to Egypt. And the reason Matthew wants this story told is because it happened, because it fulfills scripture, and because probably even more importantly, knowing about Jesus's roots will help us understand his revelation. When Jesus says, for instance, that he has come to seek or save the lost, seek and save the lost, does he mean just the lost Jews? Or does he mean the lost of the whole world? When John the writer of the gospel, reveals that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. Does he mean that God so loves the Jews or does he actually mean God so loved the world? 
that he sent his one and only son? It's, it's a good question, don't you think? Because I don't think you can automatically assume what people mean when they say all. So, like, for instance, the Constitution of the United States claims that certain unalienable rights such as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are given by the creator to all human beings. Have you heard that before? But it turns out uh, the writers didn't actually mean all human beings, at least in practical terms. What they meant was all white human beings. Uh, They did not include slaves as part of that unalienable right of freedom given by the creator. So they said it was declared for all, but it was not actually intended for all, apparently, and it would take another 100 years uh, before slaves would be kind of recategorized as persons, not property, and would be part of the, those uh, with the unalienable right of, of liberty. So when Jesus says that he has come to seek and save the lost, this is remarkable. He actually, and this is why the story is recorded. He actually means all the lost, right? When John says, God so loved the world, sent his one and only son, whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. He actually means that God so loves all the world. And when he says, whoever believes in him, he actually means whoever. This is important. One of the main reasons Matthew tells the story is to communicate right out of the gate that the Jesus story is for the whole world including our enemies, including our enemies. In fact, this point is made twice by Matthew in this chapter, um, which is interesting to me. who's Who's the other big Old Testament enemy of the Jewish people besides Egypt? Can you think of one? Who is it? Syria. Assyria defeats them at one point. You can make a great argument for Assyria. Anybody else? Babylon's who I'm thinking of because only twice are the Jewish people enslaved. They're enslaved by the Egyptians and then they're enslaved by Babylon. And so and by Egypt, about 1800 BC, they're enslaved by Babylon, 586 BC. So if you ask a first century Jew, historically, who are the two nations who have hurt you the worst? I think they would say Egypt and Babylon. They both hurt us. They're the bad guys. And part of what Matthew is is showing right out of the gate in this story is that God wants to rescue the whole world, including the bad guys. And so Jesus himself goes to Egypt. And then the reason I said Matthew makes this point twice is because the, the wise men, the magi, they go home with carrying the message of Jesus and they go home to their country and their people who are descendants of Babylon. So it's pretty powerful. Here in this story, you've got the gospel of Christ This is a point that the early church fathers make and talk about for a long time. You have the gospel of Christ specifically going to two places besides the heartbeat of the Jewish nation. And those two places are not random places. They are the home bases of the bad guys from the Old Testament. Pretty powerful. All right. Finally, a fourth reason that Matthew tells this story. And these last two reasons uh, are proclaimed, as I said, by the early church fathers. Matthew tells the story to say that those who worship Jesus, those who embrace Jesus, those who follow Jesus will be opposed in the world. There will be a cost to following Jesus. That's what he's saying. There will be a cost associated here, and it will always always be that way. Uh, We who follow Christ are following the one who began his life as a fugitive and ended his life as an enemy of the state. So there will be a cost associated with following somebody like that. 
It would be naive for us to think that there shouldn't be a cost. That when we think of following Jesus, it might be easy for us to imagine the scenes of like him walking on water or feeding 5,000 or touching somebody and healing them. Who doesn't want to follow that? But the fuller story includes Jesus' family sneaking him out of the house in the middle of the night to avoid being killed by the government. And then the government tracking him down 30 years later and actually accomplishing that. What's the point? It's to say early on, the Christian will experience adversity. Don't be surprised when you do. The Christian will be opposed by power. The Christian businessman is going to have issues come up because he's a Christian businessman. The Christian ball player, the Christian parent, the Christian student, by nature of the fact they are associated with Christ, claim to follow Christ, this will be the source of some of the tension and the conflict that's a part of their life. Anyone associated with Jesus Christ should count the cost. Did you notice in this early story about Jesus that almost everybody associated with Jesus gets marked, chased? Following Jesus will cost you something. Jesus reveals that later in his teachings, very clearly, Matthew's point is to show us that this truth is also revealed early in the life of Jesus through his actions or the actions of his family. So let's end with just a couple questions that I think get kicked up by this story. Two questions. What is your commitment to Christ costing you? If you are committed to Christ, if you're here and you are a follower of Christ, what is it costing you? Like what kind of conflict or tensions are created by the fact that you follow Jesus? Where's the rub? What is your commitment to Jesus costing? You probably not have to become a fugitive in this country if you follow Jesus, though some have. Practicing your faith will probably not lead any of us to become refugees, though that is a real issue and it's in play all around the world, as you know. So what is the cost associated with following Jesus for you and for me in this season? I think that each of us who claims to follow Jesus should be able to talk specifically about what it's costing us. We ought to be able to point to something. Maybe it's acceptance into a certain group. Maybe it's advancement through a certain system. Maybe it's really basic stuff like time, money, comfort. Maybe it's some kind of temporary personal satisfaction. Maybe you're thinking, does it, does it have to cost me something? Well, in the Bible, it always does. In the Bible, it always does. In early or in historic Christianity, it always does. If not financially, then culturally. If not culturally, then personally. It's no surprise. You shouldn't beat yourself up about this if you don't feel like, what? 
Because it's, it's really no surprise that if you don't really think of your commitment to Jesus in terms of what it costs you, because the dominant message of much of American Christianity is about God blessing you and God providing for you. And so it's actually really easy to pick up a version of the gospel today that emphasizes personal comfort and financial prosperity. It's everywhere. It is everywhere. But it's really hard to pick up that version of the gospel in the life and the teachings of Jesus. I don't see it anywhere. It's really hard to pick up that version of the gospel in the life and the teachings of his disciples. There's a cost associated with committing to Christ. What's it costing you? Early in my um, commitment to Christ as a teenager, the cost was social. A little bit later, when uh, expectations of coaches conflicted with my convictions, the cost was positional within certain teams. At times later, the costs were educational. Other times, costs were financial. Now my commitment to Christ requires a cost that is mostly personal, I think. So right out of the gate, commitment to Jesus requires Joseph and Mary to flee to another country. What is our commitment to Jesus costing us. And then the second question, final question, um, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is the cost worth it? Sometimes it's clear that my life will be happier and better if I obey Jesus. Sometimes it's clear my life will be more difficult, adversity will increase, my life will be less comfortable, and there will be negative ramifications that will last for a while for me and those I love if I obey Jesus. <laughs> right? Sometimes it feels worth it. Sometimes the cost does not feel worth it. Sometimes obeying Jesus means I don't get the job. Sometimes obeying Jesus means I will not be accepted. Sometimes Jesus, obeying Jesus means I don't start. Sometimes it means I don't have extra money. That's just sometimes what it means. And so the trap that we can easily fall into is considering these questions, what is the cost and is it worth it from a personal perspective? That's the trap. And I say it's a trap because your obedience, friends, and my obedience is probably more about helping others than it actually is about helping yourself. The cost is personal, yes, but the value, is it worth it? That's a question that's about more than yourself. And so when I think about the cost of following Christ, when I think about obeying Christ primarily as something that's about me, I'm only seeing part of the story. And the fuller story comes into view when we consider who else is helped by my obedience to Christ. Sometimes the who else uh, question in the equation is obvious. It's the people you're sharing life with. It's your family. It's your teammates. It's your close friends. But even this rather obvious truth can be easy to lose sight of in the relatively affluent and highly individualistic culture that we live in. In other words, it can be really easy to believe the lie that my obedience is not actually connected to anybody else. 
And if obeying Jesus is costly to me, and if obeying Jesus is primarily supposed to help me, then it's really easy for me to think it's not worth it. I'll just do what I want to do. It feels better and no one else will be hurt. But it's stories like this one, Mary and Joseph and Jesus moving to Egypt that remind us that we're part of a much bigger story that is being told, and our obedience is probably a lot more about helping other people than it is about helping ourselves, including those we don't even know, including those that might be perceived by some as our enemies. So maybe you write this down, who is on the other side of my obedience? Who are those that I need to enter into the equation in order for me to have an accurate understanding of the value of paying the cost? This is the kind of question, friends, that could really motivate me. Even when the cost of of following Jesus just doesn't feel that significant to me. This is what motivates me to voluntarily come alongside others who are more vulnerable, who are grieving, who are in a mess, to come alongside them and in, such a, and in doing so, take some of the cost of following Christ and experiencing some of the, some of the cost, some of the, um, some of the negative impact, right? Because then at least for them, it's worth it. In other words, I may choose to come out of my life where it seems to be, that's just not a whole lot of personal cost right now, to join somebody else's life. It's a reminder to myself, this is not really about me. This is about them. And yes, it's worth it. It's worth it. Let me just wrap up with a couple of stories. Uh, Quick, real quick. Um, Over the weekend, over the Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, we watched this really powerful documentary about Jesse Owens, who was, in case you're young, he was a track star. He went to the Olympics in 1936. He won four gold medals. And this was Hitler's Germany. And so the U.S.'s participation in these games was highly controversial. A lot of people didn't think we should go because of Hitler's agenda, to put it simply. And it cost Jesse Owens significantly, personally, as a black man going into that context. And even though he was the hero of the games, he came back to the United States where he was treated as second class. The endorsement promises dried up, and he struggled his whole life financially. It was a high cost. Was it worth it? I've been reading about the Little Rock Nine, these nine African-American high school kids that were the first to integrate Little Rock Central High School in Arkansas in 1957, which required the protection of the 101st Airborne Division of the United States Army. They literally risked their lives every day just to get into the school. And then in a book that has come out recently, it's revealing some of the horrific abuse that they experienced once they were inside. These nine students were deeply traumatized. And then the next year, 1958, rather than to continue the progress that was made towards integration of public schools, Little Rock decided we're just going to close all the public schools. Nobody gets to go to school. And so this hard-fought year of integration is referred to as the lost year. Such a high cost. Was it worth it? Maybe not for Jesse Owens, 1936. Maybe not for the Little Rock Nine, 1957. But what I'm learning is that those who would come later, even those that they didn't know, would say it was worth it. It it, it was worth it. Their cost, the price they paid, 
communicated that there was, there was good, there was, there was redemption, there was progress, there was equality, there was whatever it was we were searching for was made possible, in a sense, by the sacrifice of others. So you got this little story in the gospel about Jesus and his family going to Egypt. And, uh, and there's something there for us. And it has to do with the love of God having no bounds. And it has to do with the cost that we will need to be prepared to pay in order to extend that love in an authentic way. Amen. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, I want to ask for mercy for me and others that our, our discipleship to Christ would be authentic. Uh, we who have been baptized, we who claim to follow Christ, that we would be ready and willing um, to do so regardless of the cost. And I pray for courage for us. I pray for grace for us. I pray that those that you have come to save would be reached by the gospel and that if you could use us, that you would. And that, there would, uh, that we would be people who are available and, and, uh, and willing to be used by you in your mission. God, bless these who have gathered this morning. May they know that every part of their life matters and that you want to redeem and restore all of it. You want to use every part of it, even the hard parts to tell your bigger story of your love for this world. In Jesus' name, amen.